couple of weeks ago, we got over into supplications, and we talked about that for a couple of weeks, I think. And then uh, last week, we introduced uh, the prayer of intercession and the, the whole concept of intercession. I want to go a little bit further than, uh, than we did last week in uh, talking about intercession. And then uh, the last part of the service, I want to tie up some things together regarding both intercession and supplication, praying with, specifically praying with the help of the Holy Ghost. So we'll start reading uh, some of these uh, three verses, these three verses pertaining to these issues. Verse 18 of of, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, praying always with all prayer. Other translations say all kinds of prayer, all manner of prayer and supplication. So supplication must be different than the all kinds of prayer that he's referring to. He identifies that and specifies that. He separates that out individually. Praying always with all kinds or manner of prayer and supplication in the spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Notice he's talking about different kinds of prayer. He's talking about supplication for all saints. Philippians chapter 4, writing to the church. Verse 6, he said, be careful for nothing. Another translation says, be anxious for nothing or don't be fretful about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication. Again, he separates or identifies supplication as separate from prayer. So it must be a different type of prayer than what we normally consider uh, when we think of prayer. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So notice he mentions three things. Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. So he's talking about Christians and how Christians could and should pray. With prayer, meaning different kinds of prayer that are identified in the scripture. Supplication and thanksgiving. Finally, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writing to Timothy who's pastoring the church at Ephesus at the time that he writes. Says, I exhort therefore that first of all. Supplications, prayers, notice prayers are in plural, meaning different kinds, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Then he identifies the men he's talking about, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. So some of the men he's talking about aren't saved. Some of the kings and the others in authority aren't saved. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, he's talking about Christians praying either for themselves or other Christians. Now, he's talking about praying for people who may or may not be saved. Supplications would certainly be made for those who are saved. Intercessions would be made for those who are not. Because God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, let me ask you a question. If God wants everybody to be saved, and verse 4 is very clear on that. If God, or since God wants everybody to be saved, why isn't everybody saved? See, so much of the church has the idea and, and espouse the idea, the notion that whatever God wants, whatever is the will of God is just going to happen no matter what, whether you want it to or not, whether, you know, it's, it's out of your hands. If God wants it, he wants it. You hear a lot of Christians praying uh, for healing along those lines. Lord, pray, uh, heal me if it be your will. Meaning if it's the will of God, they're going to get healed. And if it's not the will of God, it wouldn't matter. They wouldn't get healed no matter what. But here it says it's God's will for everybody to get saved. Yet we know not everybody's going to get saved. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate that more people won't get saved than do. It talks about the way to heaven being a narrow gate. The way to hell is wide. So how come? And if it's, if it's the will of God for all men to be saved, why should we have to be praying anyway? What good is prayer going to do when we already know God's will if God's going to do it whether or not we participate or do anything or, or, or whatever? Folks, what religion has told us is the way things work isn't the way the Bible says that it works. God is instructing us to supplicate, 
or make supplication, pray different kinds of prayers, intercede and give thanks for all men because some are going to be saved, some aren't going to be saved. There are going to be different ways to pray for each one depending on their condition because God wants everybody to be saved. The implication is some people won't be saved unless we pray. Or at least that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Maybe Timothy was just a special whiz kid where prayer came, was concerned. Now, if the Holy Ghost saved it for us, the same thing belongs to us. He's saying that some won't be saved unless we pray. Now, like I said, I want to tie up some loose ends on, the, on intercession because there is such misconception, it seems to me at least, in the body of Christ about intercession. Some people think that every time, every time they pray, they intercede. Some people have uh, intercession meetings, you know, instead of calling it a prayer meeting, they'll, they'll say we're going to uh, meet together and intercede and so forth. And, and uh, some people call themselves intercessors, thinking that gives them some special place with God because they attach some name to themselves. I like what Brother Hagin used to say, you could put any kind of label you wanted to on an empty can and it won't fill the can. So it really doesn't matter what you call yourself. The question is, what have you got? Amen. I'm glad somebody agreed. Get them young. So what is intercession? The word intercession is difficult for us because if you look it up in the, uh, uh, the Greek concordance, you'll find out that it means an interview. It goes further in a secondary, uh, uh, secondary definition is to make supplication. Well, we know Paul identifies the difference between supplications and intercession, so that can't be right. And another uh, secondary definition of intercession is prayer. But again, it separates intercession in several places, this being one of them, from other types of prayer. So there's got to be a difference. So intercession is kind of different, difficult for us, just like supplication is sometimes, to identify specifically what is it and what do we use it for and how does it work. So let's go over some of the scriptures. I think we looked at most of these last time. In uh, Job chapter 9, verse 32, Job speaks of something, a condition that he's in. He said, for he, speaking of God, is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any days man. The King James uses the word days man. A days man is translated in other translations umpire. But it literally means to be right. In other words, he's saying there's nobody that's right or righteous that can speak for me. There's nobody in between me and God. There is no days man betwixt us or between us that might lay his hand upon us both. Now, folks, that's the picture of intercession. Intercession is somebody that stands in between two to join them together. Now, that you can get spooky spiritual about it or you can just realize that it, uh, it operates in a different way according to different terminology in our everyday life. For example, if, I, if, uh, if you need an accountant and I know an accountant and I introduce you to my accountant, I've just been an intercessor between you and the accountant. I've introduced two people that didn't know each other otherwise because I knew you both and I joined you together so that you can do business together or to have whatever conversation you need or whatever. So intercessor just simply means a position that brings two people together. Now, another scripture that we looked at was, uh, let me get it here real quick. Touch the wrong spot. In Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, God speaking, and he said, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge. In other words, there's a gap. There's a missing piece between God and, and man, which was the case in the Old Testament. I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land. That I should not destroy it, but found none. 
In other words, God's saying, if I could have only found somebody that could stand in between me and man. Man deserved judgment. He deserved destruction because of his wrongdoing. But if I could have found somebody. The implication is, and certainly we know this is just an illustration. But the implication is God looked for a redeemer among man first. Before he sent Jesus. But he didn't find one. In other words, the justice, the righteous justice of God recognized that there is no way that fallen man can redeem himself. So he had to do something about it. Another scripture we looked at just real briefly is Isaiah 59 verse 16. And he saw that there and he saw that there was no man speaking of God and wondered that there was no intercessor, somebody to stand in the gap, somebody to join him together with mankind. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. And his righteousness, it sustained him. In other words, because God couldn't find an intercessor or a redeemer among mankind, he had to send Jesus to be our redeemer. Jesus became our intercessor. Now, the New Testament bears that out. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. It says also, several places, we'll look first at Romans chapter 8, <coughs> verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, a lot of times, whenever somebody sees the word intercession, they automatically think that that means prayer. But it doesn't. Jesus is not praying at the right hand of the Father. If he was praying, then the work wouldn't be finished. The Bible says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because he is alive for all eternity as our intercessor, as the proof that we have been joined together to God through the work of uh, the sacrifice and the, the redemption of Jesus, the work of Jesus on the cross. Can you see that? Let's look at another scripture real quickly. Uh, forgive me for going uh, quickly through these, but these are many things that we covered last week. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Jesus is the one that's able to save to the uttermost. Those that come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth, for what purpose? To make intercession for them. Again, he's not talking about prayer. He's talking about position. Now, folks, I, want to, I really want to ingrain this into your thinking because intercession is about position. It's not just about prayer. Now, there is a prayer of intercession, but you can't make it unless you're in the right position. Are you with me? That's a real important point. Excuse me. You can't just decide I'm going to intercede for somebody and make it work unless you're in a position to make that intercession. Now, I don't know how you make intercession for someone on your own without the help of God that's unsaved, that's lost. And that's the only person you could intercede for because you can't intercede for a Christian because there's no gap. There's no division. There's no separation between a believer and God. Jesus has made that connection he's made that union together so who could you intercede for if it's not an unbeliever now you can make supplication and i think a lot of times people have been moved on by the holy ghost to pray for other christians and because of maybe the intensity of the prayer or the way that the holy ghost used them they've mistaken one for the other i know this is a mistake that was made uh in um uh, for many years back in the in many different uh, situations back in the 80s everybody was about intercession and everything that was important was intercession. People would talk about, well, we're going to intercede. We're going to groan tonight at the prayer meeting. And they left the implication that if you weren't groaning, you weren't really doing anything in prayer. 
And they got that from one scripture over in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. And we'll look at that here in a little bit. But where it talks about the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So some people take that and say, well, boy, when you're really doing something worthwhile, when you're really in the, in the presence of God, then you're groaning. Anything else is just kind of second rate. Well, how do you give yourself groanings? I've seen people put it on and it's, it's, it stinks in the nostrils of God. It's repulsive. I've seen people and heard of situations where people do all kinds of goofy things, just stupid things. Thinking they're being spiritual, trying to be spiritual. I don't doubt that they're sincere. I don't doubt that the heart's right and they want to be used of God. But because of a lack of understanding about how things work, they make a mess of things rather than bring people to the Lord. So a lot of people have the idea that intercession is the big deal. Well, how can you give intercession to yourself? How can you put yourself in a position between God and an unsaved person except God help you do that? I mean, folks, if that was able to, if it was possible for us to do that, all we would have to do is get the, get the name of every unsaved person on the earth. Divide them up between the Christians. Have every Christian pray for an unsaved person once or twice a day. Maybe, maybe do it for a week, Whatever. And by the end of that week, everybody would be saved and Jesus would come back and come back for the church. Why didn't it work that way? Because it's not up to you or me. It's up to the individual. God already wants them to be saved more than we ever do. But there are opportunities, and only the Holy Ghost will know about them, where God will let you stand in that place. But you can't give it to yourself. You sure can't give it to yourself. All right, let's look at another scripture here real quickly. That was Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Jesus ever liveth. To make intercession. He's talking about position. Notice here's another one. First John chapter 2 verse 1. John's going to use a different term. But he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about Jesus being a mediator. My little children. These things write I unto you. That you sin not. And if any man sin. We have an advocate. He calls him an advocate. Instead of an intercessor. We have an advocate. With the father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Now notice Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father. As proof that we're joined together with him. And a part of his work as our intercessor is an advocate. Another term that's used throughout scripture. Especially in the book of Hebrews. Is that Jesus is our high priest. What does that mean? That means he has a position. That has joined us together with God. It's his position that makes him high priest. Well what's he high priest of? Well the Bible says in in, uh, Hebrews. That he's the high priest of our confession. What does that mean? That means because of the finished work of Jesus. We can have what we say through the operation of faith. And he's the living proof for eternity that we're joined together with God so that our words work just like his do. That's hard for us to accept. Do you meditate on that and understand that when we speak the word of God, we get the same results as Jesus. Then we start doing the works that Jesus did when he was here. We're still talking position. So John calls him an advocate, but it's the same thing. He's talking about mediator. He's talking about intercessor. He's talking about high priest. Now look with me back to Genesis chapter 18. I want to give you what, um, what is one of the few, in my opinion, the, the, uh, the most significant example of intercession that we have in the scripture. Now we know that other times uh, intercession was made. For example, Paul said, writing to Galatians, my little children of whom I travail in birth again. 
until Christ be formed in you. So what is he saying? He's saying, I made an intercession for you before I ever got to you to, so that you would be saved, so that you received the gospel that I came to preach to you. But then after you got saved, I kept making supplication for you now that you're believers. I'm not interceding, but I'm supplicating for you. And he indicates that it's the same intensity whether before they were saved and after they were saved. I prayed just as hard for you after you got saved to, to, to grow in the knowledge of Jesus as I did before you got saved to get you saved. So we see examples of where intercession was made. But here's, here's one I want you to see. Genesis chapter 18. Let's start reading in verse. Uh, well, the first part of Genesis 18 is when the Lord appears to a- uh, Abraham and tells him about Sarah. And uh, they'll have a child next time this year and so forth. Verse 17. The, the, uh, Jesus and the other angels that went down with him are about to depart. And the Lord said, verse 17, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him. Now I want you to notice, here's Jesus. When it says the Lord, is talking about the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Jesus is the one that made the covenant with, with uh, Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 15 and, and uh, walked between the pieces of this separated split animal and and all that kind of stuff and now it says that the lord says shall i hide from abraham my covenant partner shall i hide from him the thing which i do i want you to understand a part of your covenant blessings is revelation god wants you to know what he's going to do let me say that again god wants you to know what he's going to do he doesn't want you taken by surprise in anything that he does now keep that in mind So he says, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing he's going to become a great nation? In other words, seeing my covenant promises are going to become a reality for him because I know him. Now, what do you know about him, Lord? I know that he'll train up his children in the way they should go. I know that he shall command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Folks, please understand that a part of the covenant blessing was not just so that Abraham would have his needs met and be a great man, but so that God could bless his children through him. Well, you've got a better covenant established upon better promises. God wants to bless your children through you more than he wanted to bless Abraham's children through him. And that's the only thing you'll ever find in Scripture that might be an indication for why God picked him. Abraham, I mean. The only thing in Scripture you can find. There's no thing that that God looks or or Scripture records that says that God searched the earth and said, well, Abraham's the best I could find. He's worshiping idols, but hey, you can't have everything. This is the only thing that Scripture ever says about what might be a characteristic of Abraham that caused God to choose him to be a covenant partner with. Why Abraham? He was an idol worshiper. The rest of mankind was an idol worshiper. Abraham was no better, no worse, no different from anybody else. It's not like God was looking for the Jews, so he looked down on the earth and found the guy wearing the little beanie cap. There's no such thing as a Jew. Abraham was not a Jew. That'll fry your brain when you start thinking about that. God did not make a covenant with the Jews. He made a covenant with Abraham. The Jews came from Abraham. Abraham was not a Jew. He was an idol worshiping heathen. But God said, I want to choose you. And this is the only thing that says, because I know him, he'll command his children after him. Family has something to do with this thing, folks. Verse 20. So now the Lord's going to tell him what he's going to do. 
And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous. Now, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexuality. And here's what the Bible says about that sin. It says it's a very grievous sin. And because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. Think about what's being said. It's God saying, the earth is crying out to me because of the grievous sin. I'm going to go see if it's what I've heard. Who did he hear it from? Certainly not the people that are doing it. There's not enough people in town that are against it. We're going to find out in just a few minutes to make a difference. So it's not like people are crying out saying, oh, Lord, do away with the wickedness of our city. The whole city's involved in it. So where is he hearing this from? The earth is crying out. You remember that... uh, Abel's blood cried out to the Lord from the ground when Cain slew him. And the men turned their faces, verse 22, from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And the Lord said, Who do you think you are? How dare you speak to me? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then will I spare all the place for their sakes. Doesn't sound like a whole lot of negotiation going on there. Doesn't sound like God's kicking a lot about it. Abraham just says, if you find 50 righteous, will you spare the city? And God said, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Doesn't sound like God's really interested in destroying the city unless he has to. People have the idea that God's looking to pour out judgment. Folks, he's had so many opportunities to do so and pass them up. That's not your heavenly father. He's not looking to catch you doing wrong. He's looking for an opportunity to overlook your wrongdoing and bless you anyway. That's what's important for us to learn who we are in Christ. The the righteousness that belongs to us because of the shed blood of Jesus and how to pray. So Abraham answered and said, behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the 50 righteous. Will thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And the Lord said, if I find there 40 and 5, I'll not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, peradventure, there shall be 40 found there. And he said, I'll not do it for 40's sake. And he said unto him, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Peradventure, there shall 30 be found there. And he said, I'll not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure, there shall be 20 found there. And he said, I'll not destroy it for 20's sake. Why didn't Abraham just start off where he wanted to be? Could it be that he wasn't sure about who he was talking to? Verse 32, and he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. I think that's where he messed up. I think what he should have done is said, okay, if this is the last time I'm going to talk to you, will you spare it for Lot's sake? I've got family in that city. Because that's really what he was after. He didn't care about the cities, folks. He didn't go to the cities. He knew what the, what the reputation of the cities was. 
he did, Abraham's not trying to spare the cities. He's trying to spare his, his, uh, his family, Lot and his family that lived there in the cities. He said, oh, let, me, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak yet but this once. Peradventure there shall be ten found there. And he said, I'll not destroy it for the ten's sake. And the Lord went his way, and as soon as he left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. Now, I think that last phrase is interesting. And Abraham returned unto his place. Where were they? In Abraham's tent or around his campsite. That's where God had spoken to Abraham. That's where Abraham, that's where Sarah was listening in and laughed. And the Lord pointed it out. Abraham drew it to to her attention. They're right around the campsite. So what is it talking about? Abraham returned unto his place. I believe it's telling us that Abraham took a different position than he normally would have. That position was as an intercessor between Sodom and God. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and God. Now, let me ask you a question. Let's go back to the beginning of this story. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? And Abraham winds up saying, Lord, are you going to do right? Wouldn't be like you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Will you spare the city for the sake of 50? Was God surprised when Abraham asked? Let me ask you this way. Why, knowing the end of the story from the beginning, why would the Lord, knowing what was going to happen, even tell Abraham about what he was going to do? Is it possible? I'm sure it's a lot more than possible. But I just want you to consider the possibility, if nothing else. Is it possible that the reason that the Lord told him is because he wanted him to try to spare the city? But if there's unrighteousness, if there's a very grievous sin taking place and he goes down and sees it, he in his righteous judgment is obligated to do something about it unless somebody asks him otherwise. Somebody that he's in a relationship with and has a covenant relationship with asks him to do otherwise. I'm convinced, folks, and you think whatever you want to about this and you judge this for yourself, but I'm convinced that when he says, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, I believe he's saying Abraham is the one on the earth that I'm giving authority to because of the covenant I've made with him. He deserves to know what's going on, what's coming, so that he can have a say-so in it. If that's the case, and if that's the picture that we have of intercession, If that's the picture we have of man's authority when we're given the place. If that's the picture we have, why do you think God shows us in Scripture prophecies about what's going to happen and how things are going to go at the end? I'm convinced that God showed Abraham because he wanted him to pray. Now, now don't get spiritual on me when you think about prayer. Prayer is just communicating with God. That's all Abraham's doing right here. He's communicating with God. And notice there's not a groan in it. Intercession doesn't have to be some spooky thing. Doesn't have to be some weird stuff where somebody's rolling around on the floor making all kinds of crazy noises. I heard a story where where, uh, there was, um, well, I don't even want to tell you the story. Never mind. Just the mental picture of it's gotten me all weirded out now. No, I need to tell you. There was a wedding, and there, were, there was a visiting, um, uh, there was a family member that was uh, getting saved, and so they were in from out of town, but the, the, uh, the relatives, the father and the mother, whoever it was, were uh, family members. So the, uh, the pastor and the uh, visiting 
the pastor and his wife and the, the mother and father of the bride or groom, whoever it was, were sharing responsibilities, kind of doing the joint wedding. And, um, uh, and this, um, during the middle of the wedding, while it's going on during the middle, middle of the wedding, the mom, the visiting mom, winds up going and speaking out in tongues. It's a big, big wedding. A lot of people not even saved there. Winds up speaking in tongues, doing all kinds of goofy things. Winds up pushing the pastor, the home pastor, over on the floor, getting on top of him, doing all this groaning and rolling around and all this kind of stuff. People were walking out of the wedding. Well, that sure brought a blessing to everybody. All because she's trying to be spiritual. People get such goofy ideas about things, folks. God doesn't want the world to think we're nuts. Now, they may hate you, they may persecute you, but he doesn't want them to have any reason to say we're crazy people. There are going to be all kinds of opportunities for the world to say, boy, we sure don't understand those people, but we shouldn't be giving them ammunition. (laughs) So Abraham is interceding. Now, why is he interceding? I believe he's interceding because God gives him a place to do so. And I believe that's the reference that's being made here. Except the Lord revealed to him what's going to happen. There's no way that he could have any, uh, any knowledge to even ask, will you spare it for 50? And then work his way down to 10. Right? Turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Here's one of those scriptures I was telling you about that people use to get weird. There's not one kind of prayer that will make you weird. Now, a lot of people that pray are weird. No question about that. But prayer won't make you weird. And there's nothing that God will do to cause it to happen. Romans chapter 8. We looked at verse 34, I believe, earlier where it talks about Jesus is our intercessor. intercessor. He sits at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. The, the comparative scripture that's being spoken of is in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now, the word infirmity here doesn't mean sickness. It means weakness. And he's going to specify what weakness he's talking about. What weakness do we have that the Holy Spirit, that we need the Holy Spirit's help with? Very simply, we know not what we should pray for as we ought. In other words, our knowledge is limited about things. Anybody dare to argue with that? Well, we all agree to that. We all understand that, right? Well, what he's saying is the Holy Ghost will help you beyond the limitations of your knowledge. Now, if you start thinking about praying for somebody else, whether Christian or non-Christian, most of the times we don't know what their situation is. We may know a little bit about their situation. We may know what somebody told us or we may know a little bit about what somebody shared. But very seldom do we know the whole story. Even if we think we've heard the whole story from the individual. There's usually more to it than that. There's a verse in Proverbs that always has caught my attention. It says the first side of the story you hear you think is right. Then you hear the other side and you find out what the truth is. A lot of people are ready to jump on the first side of the story. That's why a lot of people want to tell their story. Because they want to get people on their sides. Be careful before you jump in. Well, as a result, very seldom do we know the real story. The real thing behind what's going on. We may not even know what's going on, but may not know what's behind it. But the Holy Ghost will help us beyond the limitations of our knowledge. How does he do that? The Holy Spirit himself, King James says itself, but he's not an it. The Spirit himself maketh intercession for us. He's not talking about prayer. He's not saying the Holy Ghost prays for you. He's saying the Holy Ghost takes a position for you. 
beyond the limits of your knowledge. How does he do that? With groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, I think we've made this statement before, but it bears repetition, especially in light of this. And that is, P.C. Nelson, who was the foremost Greek scholar of his day, was asked by a group of ministers, what does this mean? Because there were misunderstandings and misconceptions about groanings in prayer and stuff like that, even in their, in their day. And so he said the most literal translation that he could come up with was God talk. God talk. Now, certainly the translators understood that uh, by the fact that they translated it groanings, that there's an intensity to it. Maybe in, in some cases a greater intensity than normal. But literally what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit will help you to go beyond the limitations of your knowledge in praying for others by giving you utterance in other tongues. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when you pray in an unknown tongue, you're praying divine secrets. Mysteries is what the King James says. Another translation, Wayne's translation, I believe it is, says divine secrets. Well, why are they secrets? Because we don't know. A secret is something that nobody knows. It's secret from you and it's secret from the devil. Which is one great reason that I think God helps us by giving us utterance in other tongues so that the devil doesn't always know what we're praying. He'll make you think he knows everything. Folks, he knows very little or any, uh, about anything. He didn't know Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. And the Bible said so. The Old Testament told him about it. I don't know if he has trouble reading or just doesn't understand. But the Bible says if the devil knew that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead, he wouldn't have crucified him. Well, if he doesn't know that, how in the world is he going to know the details about you? Don't believe him when he says he does. So likewise, the Spirit himself helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us, takes a position for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the spirits because he, the Spirit, maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, it's saying the position that he takes by giving you utterance in other tongues is always according to God's will. You may not know what you're saying, but you're always praying the will of God. Now, verse 28, I, I can't just stop with verse 27 because verse 28 is one that our, the church pulls out and tries to hang on his own. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. When do we know that? After the Holy Ghost gives us utterance to speak in other tongues and to pray beyond our natural knowledge. That's when things work out because we've just prayed the will of God. That's when they work out. Not anything and everything that happens is the will of God and somehow he's got a purpose in it. No, I think a lot of times people bypass or forfeit the will of God being done in their life because they won't give um, a place of prominence to speaking in other tongues, even those that are spirit-filled. I like what Brother Hagin used to say, the Holy Ghost, the Bible says the greater one dwells in you. Well, what's he doing in there? Is he just riding with you through life? If you had somebody important sitting in your living room, you'd make a place for him, wouldn't you? How much more so should we make a place for the Holy Ghost in our lives? Now notice this, uh, back to verse 26. Notice it says, likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. The word helpeth uh, needs to be expanded. Because the word helpeth, the words that make up the translation, the word that's translated helpeth, literally means this. To take hold together with against. Likewise the Spirit also takes hold together with us against our infirmities. That's what it means. 
to take hold together with against our infirmities. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. If I ask somebody, if we said, okay, we need to move this podium off to the side, down on the floor for a minute. I need a couple of guys to come help me pick this up. Don't you think I could tell when they grabbed their end? If I lifted my end and I'm ready to go, don't you think I could tell when they got a hold of theirs? In other words, they would be taking hold together with me against the weight of this pulpit. Right? Likewise, the Spirit takes hold together with us against our infirmities. In other words, it's saying the Holy Ghost will take hold together with you in prayer. When he gives you a place, when he makes intercession for you, he, can take, he will take hold together with you against whatever you're praying about or your lack of knowledge about what you're praying about. Now, you can start off praying things yourself, but it's different when the Holy Ghost takes hold with you. Let me give you an example. Brother Hagin used to tell the story about the farmer uh, couple that uh, had a missionary daughter. Her daughter's name was Blanche, and she was a missionary in some foreign country somewhere over on the other side of the world. And uh, they get up early on the farm, you know, and, the, and, and Blanche's father went to, to go uh, feed the chickens and milk the cows and that kind of stuff and, uh, and got halfway to the barn and turned around and came back in the house. She's, mom was fixing, you know, breakfast and getting everything ready and expecting him to come back after the cows are milked and chores are done and, and so forth. And she said, honey, what is it? You're back too soon to have finished everything. Is everything all right? He said, no, there's something wrong. She said, what do you mean something's wrong? She said, he said, it's Blanche. Something's wrong. He said, I don't know. I, I, I could be wrong on this, but it seems to me like our life's in danger. Well, here's a spirit-filled mom and dad that all of a sudden, because of that, because of that impression that they had by the Holy Ghost, got on the floor and started praying. They prayed for an hour. They prayed for two hours. They prayed for three hours. They prayed for four hours, I think, four and a half hours, something like that total. The cows are out there mooing because they haven't been milked. The chickens are looking for their feed. All the chores have been undone. Nothing has been taken care of, but they're praying, 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 praying. Finally, they get a release in their heart. They get a note of victory. They kept praying. Please understand this, folks. When the Holy Ghost impresses you to pray, stay with it till you get a note of victory. Now, some people will say, well, what is that note of victory? You'll know when you get it. It'll be a change. That's all I can tell you. There'll be a lightness. There'll be a happiness. Sometimes it comes with a song. But some way or another, you will know that things are different. You've gotten your answer. You'll know it inside. So they did. They stayed with it until they got the note of victory. They started just sitting there singing songs and praising God for the answer and so forth. Well, it was, um, this was some years ago. Communication wasn't what it is now. And so several weeks later, they found out that at the very time that they were praying, Blanche's life was in danger. If I remember the story right, she had contracted some kind of jungle fever or something like that, and she was uh, given up for dead. And all of a sudden, at the very time that they got their note of victory, you know, uh, figuring out the time change and all that kind of stuff from different places in the world, was when they got their note of victory, that's when the Lord raised her up and she was perfectly healed. Now, what was that? It was the Holy Ghost prompting them to pray. Look at it from both sides. What if the Holy Ghost prompted them to pray, but they ignored it? Here's God trying to do his part. Here's the Holy Ghost trying to do his part to bring information or knowledge beyond the knowledge that they could have mentally, beyond mental knowledge, beyond natural knowledge. How would they know what's going on at that point in time around the world? What if they hadn't taken hold together with him? Or what if they had just decided on their own, you know, we want to pray for Blanche, not knowing anything was going on, if it wasn't a crisis, perhaps the Holy Ghost wouldn't have helped them, wouldn't have taken hold together with them. See, we can't do God's part, but God can't do our part. Can you see that? Now, that would have been supplication because they're praying for a believer. 
the same thing's true where unbelievers are concerned. But it comes down to very simply this. It's when the Holy Ghost takes hold together with us that things happen. Now, some of these things are kind of hard to, to discern. In a situation like that, it was an immediate need. It was a critical situation, so it was hot and heavy. If you know what I mean by that. It was intense. The prayer that they were impressed to pray was intense. They prayed hard, hard and fast for several hours, four hours and something. But it's not always that way. I know that uh, uh, just here this, uh, this last, well, within the last six or seven months, I guess, I know that Beth has taken upon herself to pray for some of the young people, the youth and, and uh, some of the college-age people in our church that had pulled away from the Lord. And so she just started taking them one by one, taking them by name, just started taking them one by one. And we've had some marvelous results with people, some of those very same people coming back to the Lord. In many cases, getting things right back with their families again. She didn't make any big deal about it. Now, now let me ask you a question. Did she do that on her own or was she prompted to do it by the Holy Ghost? Well, it wasn't like God spoke to her. It wasn't like God would bring somebody to her, her thinking and said, start with this one. Or here's a critical situation like the thing with the missionary, the family praying for their, their daughter, the missionary daughter. But I guess we'd have to agree that the very desire that she had to pray for those people to bring them back to their families and bring them back into the things of God would be God-inspired because it was motivated by the love of God within her. Right? So sometimes things are just a, a difference of degrees. Some of the things may seem the least impressed, the least little bit of an impression upon you, but when you take on, take it on in prayer, the Holy Ghost will hook up with you. And you get miraculous results. That's why we need to be sensitive to just the smallest impressions of the things of God. I think a lot of people are waiting for something big. I remember Brother Hagin talking about ministers that he knew that would tell him when he was on the road. Well, if you hear of a big church that needs a pastor, let me know. He'd laugh and he'd say they weren't qualified to even pastor a little church. Because they're sitting around waiting for something big. I think a lot of Christians do that. They're waiting for something big. They're waiting for the Holy Ghost to really move upon them. Because when he really moves, when they really know, when they feel something, then they'll accept that that's God. But God moves on the small things. Because if he can't get you to respond to the small things, he'll never be able to use you on the big things. You see what I'm saying? I know that um, uh, Brother Hagin used to tell the story about uh, uh, pastor friends of his, Brother and Sister Goodwin. Sister Goodwin was always the one that was, um, um, they would be used in tongues and interpretation a lot. And, and uh, Brother Goodwin would be the one to speak in tongues. And she would most often be the one to interpret. And as a result, she was very sensitive in prayer, used in prayer a lot by the Lord. And uh, Brother Hagin said he's never seen anybody pastor a church like the Goodwins did. They just had a flow of the Spirit constantly in their church. And there, it was due to a number of things. A, a lot of it had to do with the call that was upon their lives and the way that God used them individually. But part of it, too, was the time that they lived in. There were less distractions. People didn't have so many things. Brother Hagin just said people were a lot more committed back then. He's talking about in the 40s and even in the 50s. People were just more committed back then. They didn't go to church because there was nothing else to do. They went to church because it was part of their lives. They were committed to the things of God. He talked about revivals that would go on for six and seven weeks. Man, you get people to stay 60 or 70 minutes and you've, you know, really done something now. But anyway, he said one night they were trying to get off to sleep and Brother, uh, Brother Goodwin was trying to get off to sleep one Sunday night after church all day, you know. And uh, Sister Goodwin started praying. 
and woke him up. And so she said, oh, I'm sorry. I know, honey, I know you need to sleep. I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize he's getting loud. So that happened two or three times. So he realized he's not going to get any sleep as long as she's praying. So he says, okay, well, let's just get out of bed. I can stay awake better if we get out of bed. Let's get out of bed and we'll pray about this thing. He's thinking that if he can help her pray. Now get this. If someone has a burden of the Lord to pray about something, if you take on that burden too, you can help relieve it from them. In some cases, still has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's what he's trying to do. But he's drifting off to sleep, sitting there on his knees, leaning over the bed and that kind of stuff. And finally, he realizes, I'm not going to get anything done. She's under this tremendous burden, spiritual burden. So he said, let's do this. Let's pray that God would give this person a dream or a vision. Because they had concluded that somebody's life in the church was in danger. She had, had, had ascertained that much, spiritually sensitive enough to, to perceive that that was the case. So he said, let's pray that God would give them a dream or a vision and show them what to do to spare their life. Well, next morning, one of the members of their church, Sunday school superintendent, I believe it was, goes out to the oil field. And uh, one of the guys that works at the top of the tower didn't show up that day. So the, uh, the gang boss says, uh, the foreman says, well, Ed, why don't you go up to the top and, and uh, work the top of the tower? So Ed starts up, gets about 10 rungs up the ladder, stops, comes back down. He says, what's the matter? And he says, well, he said, I had a dream last night that while I was working the top, that uh, so-and-so, Joe, didn't show up. And I worked the top of the tower. And while I was working up there, the cable broke and snapped my head clean off. Well, one, one of the other guys in the, uh, in the, the group uh, started laughing. He, now, he went to the Baptist church. <laughs> hey, I'm just telling you the story. He went to the Baptist church. So he said, oh, I'm not superstitious. I'll go work the top of the tower. Well, he climbed up the top of the tower. It wasn't 15 minutes later. The cable broke, snapped his head off, fell down to the bottom of the tower and hit the full gospel super, Sunday school superintendent in the back. Now, somebody might say, well, why didn't God spare the, the Baptist? Did God love the Baptist as much as he loved the Pentecostals? Well, the answer is very simple. Because there wasn't somebody to pray for him. Because there wasn't somebody spiritually sensitive enough to what was going to happen. The work of the enemy to pray for him to turn things around. Folks, the, 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 thing, the point that I'm trying to make is very simply this. Whether it's intercession or whether it's supplication, you can take it on on your own, but you can't give it to yourself. One last story to prove my point. Uh, when I was at Ramah uh, in 1981, I believe it was 81 when I was there, um, there was um, uh, a gentleman that was a friend of the ministry that was uh, uh, 39 years of age. And uh, he was uh, married. They had a couple of kids, a couple of real small kids. And um, uh, word came to us. I won't go into a lot of detail, but word came to us, came to Brother Hagen, came to the ministry that uh, he was in the hospital. He was at the point of death. And, um, uh, and it looked like he wasn't going to make it. So Brother Hagen went to the hospital to visit. Uh, had been close friends with the family for a long time, close friends with their, their other family members of theirs, not just the individual. But uh, then came back and, and um, uh, kind of gathered us all together in the auditorium and said, look, we need to pray. This is very critical. It's uh, obviously he's 39 years old. He's too young to die. He said, we need to pray. And so we're going to start praying tonight and we're going to carry this on for the next several nights. So uh, clear your schedule if you can and come pray with us and come. Let's change this. So first night we stayed there. We stayed for about an hour and a half. We prayed, we prayed, we prayed. Uh, did everything we knew to do, praying in tongues and so forth. Second night, we're praying. Now, this is a story we heard afterwards. We didn't know what was going on at the time. 
But uh, during the second night, now we've been praying for, uh, Brother Hagin had been praying for several hours on his own. Now we've been praying together as a group for a couple of hours. Brother Hagin said to the Lord while he was praying, Lord, you're not taking hold together with me on this. Going back to uh, Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit takes hold together with us against our infirmities. See, he's trying to do it himself, in other words. He's initiating this prayer. He's initiating what he perceives to be the will of God in this situation, which you would normally assume. With long life shall I satisfy you and show you my salvation, Psalm 91 says. 39 is not long life by anybody's count. So he's praying and he finally says, Lord, you're not taking hold together with me on this. And the Spirit spoke back to him and said, no, I'm not going to either. And he said, why? He's only 39 years of age. He's too young to die. He's got wife and kids, small kids. And the Lord said, spiritual laws have been put in motion and they cannot be changed at this time. And, and so the Lord, uh, so Brother Hagin asked the Lord, he said, well, what do we do? He said, in three days from now, he's going to be dead. He said, well, okay, thank you very much. Now, that may not be the answer you want, but that's the answer the Lord said is, is that's what the Lord said is going to happen. He's already gotten information from the Lord that he's not going to be able to change it. So he didn't get up and say, well, I've heard from the Lord. He's going to die. That would have killed a prayer meeting, wouldn't it? So he just got up and said, okay, well, let's, uh, let's go. Tell you what, let's just let this be the last night we pray on this. That was it. We thought, well, okay, whatever. Don't know if he's heard from the Lord. It seems like if he had, he had told us, but this is it. So I guess it is what it is. Now, some people misinterpreted that. Some people said, left that prayer meeting and started saying for the next several days, well, we prayed and Brother Hagin said we didn't need to pray anymore, so it's done. He's going to be raised up and everything's going to be fine. Well, nobody said that. People just put their own interpretation on things sometimes. So anyway, three days later, they died. The man died. At the funeral, the next week, whenever it was, at the viewing of the body, they had a little viewing ceremony just before the, the, uh, the night before, I think it was, the, before the funeral. Um, Brother Hagin said was at the, the funeral and said that uh, he was standing there with some of the family members around the casket. And one of them said, you know, Jim, never, Jim always said that he'd never lived to see 40. And Brother Hagin heard that, heard the, the brother say that, and say, wait a minute, forgive me for interrupting. Did you just say this? He says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, by that time, the mother, the deceased fellow's mother had walked up, and he'd entered into the conversation and said, oh, yeah. Yeah, he started saying that from the time he was a teenager. And I don't know why he would say that. The brother said, one time we were out in the, in the, by the barn, you know, had a rope swing or something like that, playing out there. And he said, got real serious and said, you know, I'll die before I'm 40 years old. And the mother said, yeah, he's always said that, that I could remember. He's always said that he'd never lived to see 40. Well, you can see what the Lord was trying to tell Brother Hagin. Spiritual laws have been set in motion. You can't change somebody's year, decade-long confession just because you pray and want things to be different. Now, why did he say that? I have no idea. I guess that's the secret between him and the Lord. But you can't change everything in prayer. But the things the Holy Ghost will take hold together with you to pray, those are the things you can change. Can you see that? So whether it's intercession, praying for the lost, or making supplication, praying for believers, look for where the Holy Ghost will take hold together with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege to pray. Thank you, Lord, for the power, the unlimited power that's available to us when we allow the Holy Ghost to take hold together with us. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive, to recognize the smallest of impressions, to pray and to be used of you as you see fit. Thank you, Father, 
for the exceeding greatness of your power, resurrection power that works in us when we pray. Thank you also, Lord, for revealing to us the things that are yet to come that we might pray to either change them or to work together with you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.